Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Jacob L. Wright, Professor of Hebrew Bible at Emory University's Candler School of Theology. Jacob's new book, Why the Bible Began, an alternative history of scripture and its origins, is one of the best books I read in 2023. Jacob brings together the historical and archaeological evidence of the nearly thousand-year period over which the stories in the Hebrew Bible were constructed. More than just show us how particular events unfolded compared to the biblical narratives, Jacob tells us why these stories came together in the way they did. The Bible's writing and origins tell us about its purpose, not only as a religious text, but also as a map for rebuilding in the wake of the respective conquerings of the kingdom of Israel in 722 BC and the kingdom of Judah in 586 BC. Jacob, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network. Well, thanks for having me, Caleb. Of course, you know, this, as I say in the intro, this book is just unbelievably fascinating. It's the the sort of thing that I wish that I wish they assigned me in in, in Hebrew school back when I was uh, (laughs) 12, 13 years old. Uh, it 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 would have answered a lot of questions. But first of all, thank you for the introduction. I yeah. I was really moved by it. Of course, yeah, no, it, it, this it was, it was so fun to read, uh, you know, it, it, and and I just I'm really excited for this conversation today. It really is. It, it's really so well written, very clear, uh, and, and you bring together so many th- different things. But before talking about the book, I just wanted to just introduce yourself. Tell us a little about yourself, your background. So um, I am not from the South. I teach at Emory University, which is in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, but came here after spending and uh, about 10, 12 years in Germany. I uh, am an American, but headed off to Germany um, right after college. And um, uh, as I said before, I told this a little bit before, um, was actually to work in the concentration camp at Dachau. And um, there I uh, decided to stay and to pursue my studies in Germany and did biblical studies there. And as a Jew uh, in Germany, it was very interesting for me. And um, um, I have a, it really shaped my um, understanding of how to confront the past, as Germans have done really quite extraordinarily in comparison to other countries. And that really brought to my work in biblical studies, which um, a uh, professor discovered that I could do biblical text and so forth, and he immediately invited me to do a dissertation. But what really gave that dissertation, and I think my work after, a larger intellectual horizon was being a Jew in Germany in the modern time. That, that's a, that's an interesting background. I, you know, I, I'm wondering how it is that 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 you sort of came to to think about this book. If there was a kind of a, a moment where you thought I would like to write a book about. Why, why the Bible began? Where do these stories really yeah. come from? Well, it grew out of that moment of defeat that I was seeing all over the biblical text. And um, it's been taken seriously by biblical scholars, but interpreted in a way that is, uh, I think, doesn't get at its full dimensions. And what prompted that was, again, my experience of Germany, where um, they have this thing called um, um, Vergangenheit, and it is an attempt to kind of come to the terms with the past in an honest confrontation and not denying, not sublimating them, not refusing to, uh, to reflect on them. And, um, and that's not what Germany has done. And it's created such a powerful culture uh, in the rebirth as a, as a nation that is committed to truth-telling. And there's a lot of problems still in Germany. There's no doubt about it. But um, I started seeing that same um, honesty within the biblical text. And that honesty, though, is dissimilar from the, the German case, is that the German uh, World War II um, Third Reich history is a, a, a real history of culpability. The biblical text, however, they create culpability where it really wasn't there to be honest, right? They say, well, you failed to take care of the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. That's why we've been conquered. 
And of course, Babylon conquered Judah for very different reasons than that they didn't care for each other in the way that the covenant lays out. But it, there is this attempt to find some agency in the depths of despair and destruction and exile and so forth, and this, to find some hope on the horizon and to do that, they looked for agency. What could, what could we have done differently? And that's the, that kind of agency that get, has given Germany also hope and has made it such a, a lead, leader within the European context is that um, it grows out of, an, uh, out of a courage to, um, to rebuild oneself. And, that, and that's what I see as the Bible doing, trying to reshape a new form of community and one that is thoroughly political, not just a religion, but a new thing that I call nationhood or peoplehood. The Bible uh, is being written at the sort of the end of of these this uh, this classic classical Jewish community, or or not yet known as Jewish, the Jewish identity coming a little later. Uh, later, but the end of the uh, the kingdoms of of Israel and Judah. Uh, but, but I'm curious to bring it back a little bit to to the late Bronze Age, where some of those uh, those early stories uh, might have come from in the Levant, uh, the late Bronze Age and early Iron Age. So, what what was like life like then uh, in the okay, Levant? Now you're know? into your your, your um, uh, Sunday school and temple days um, at the synagogue, where you're like, did this actually happen, <laughs> Rabbi? Did the Exodus actually happen? What was what was it like back in then? Um, what's really true about this stuff? And that's really, for me, the point of departure for the book. And I lay that out in the first part, uh, chapter after chapter, kind of lay out the rise and the fall of these kingdoms and what preceded it. Was there already an Israelite people, a Jewish people, what have you, Hebrew people that preexisted the formation of these states? Um, what To what extent can we trust these uh, narratives of the Exodus, of the judges and conquest? And Instead of just dismissing them and showing to what extent the archaeological record actually makes it very difficult in any way to accept the basic, even the basic contours of these stories. So that the Exodus story, for example, um, they leave Egypt and enter Canaan where there are no Egyptians, but we know at that time there were actually Egyptians. The archaeological record shows that Canaan was heavily populated by Egyptian soldiers. <laughs> and so they couldn't. And so the biblical story doesn't make sense if you look at the archaeological record. But the point there here is that instead of just um, refuting the text, as a lot of books have done, I use that as the point of departure for a, a deeper reflection. So if the history deviates so um, thoroughly from the story, what does that help us um, understand about the making of the story, the why that story was told, um, and um, and makes it literature in a real sense. And I, I have to work with students to when they're interpreting a text for them not to then appeal to something historical when it is in it fundamentally a narrative that constructs the past in a way that is meaningful to the present. And to answer your question, there are quite a few texts that can come from much earlier times, but um, we have to be careful about just like focusing on those texts without seeing how, whether they are older or later, uh, scholars may argue, we have to um, reckon with a lot of uh, weaving together of various threads, but it's what we have in the final analysis is a text, a narrative, and that narrative deviates heavily from the history, and thus it requires us to approach it as literature in the fullest sense. So, when we look at some of the, the stories that we find, for example, you know, the, the great flood uh, that, that that Noah took his built his ark, uh, and then something like let's say the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, you know, and, and you you discuss um, the the discovery of of tablets in the library of, of Ashurbanipal in Nineveh. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm curious, you know, the, some of these stories, uh, were, were they common to other groups, not just the, the people that would then become the, uh, the, the Israelites and the Judeans? Yes. Yeah, so <clears throat> first of all, that story of how that library was discovered is really quite interesting. And it began with in the book. Um, and I, what they found, um, um, there for 
in just a few decades after the um, archaeologists, the first archaeologists started bringing the library, these texts to light. This is the library of a king of Assyria that um, had collected texts from many different places and had scholars who created kind of an archive of different literature, canonical texts is what we call them, as well as the documents for the empire. That was lost to us completely. And when we recovered them through archaeological discovery in the 19th and 20th centuries, um, we started discovering a lot of overlap. The most important one is the flood story and the overlap between the Babylonian flood story that appears in um, also this larger, well-known, now well-known epic called the Gilgamesh epic. Um, that uh, flood story is um, just undeniably a indirect source or, or perhaps even direct source for some of the biblical storytelling around the flood. And then we start seeing in this flood story that there are actually two different accounts of it. And things just get very, very interesting to uh, that we have two different accounts of the flood that have been woven together within the flood story and uh, perhaps in the later edit editorial. But we also have this other body of literature that shows that these stories were um, uh, not made up whole cloth by the Hebrew scribes. And then that, once again... Caleb draws us into that question. Here we have um, two different. We have a different understanding of first of all how this literature is really literature. It's responding to another body of literature, and that intertextuality is really in a political sense, in a religious sense as well. And and it shows, in as much as it shows, for example, that the flood is caused not because that the gods are tired of listening to humans making all this crack and noise on the on the earth and thus decide to wipe them out, but rather because humans are immoral. And this God is, it finds it, their behavior repugnant. And so it shifts it and we start seeing, oh, look at what these writers did. They're working intertextually, intertextually in a very modern sense. And they're creating text as Gagan text or a con con counter text to show no, the flood story, yes, flood happened, but for different reasons. And that helps us just really unpack dimensions of the biblical text that are um, sadly still today unknown to many people who love the Bible. You know, picking up with some of the, those early stories that we find in the Hebrew Bible, uh, looking at, at the Pentateuch, uh, also known as the five books of, of Moses, these books encompass both what you refer to as uh, the family story in Genesis, and then also the, the Exodus conquest account in later books. Uh, what do we know about the origins of these stories? Who, who wrote them? Where do we come from? Uh, where do they come from? And when were they sort of set down uh, in, the, in, in text? Yeah, that's a good question, because um, that plays a big role in my the story I tell, that you actually have multiple histories behind the larger narrative. One history is this story in Genesis, and scholars noted um, early on that the story in Genesis does not need to have the continuation of the book of Exodus because the book of Exodus kind of begins pretty nicely with a situation in which, where do we come from? If the history is trying to answer that question, well, we began as slaves in Egypt, actually, a motley group of slaves. And our God brought us out and formed us into this people. And we did it in a covenantal sense. And we then came to this land and we're not from this land. Whereas the book of Genesis says, where do we come from? Well, we're third generation Canaanites. Abraham, our grandfather, came from Babylon, but our father Jacob, the 12 tribes, the regions of all these places that will become the kingdoms of Israel and Judah are given these personal names that, or the names that they already have are then identified as people going back to these tribes that have were born in the land. So you have competing kinds of more of an indigenous understanding of history and then more of an exodus uh, that we are not a part of this land. And, and looking at how those kinds of histories are told, whether it be you, the colonists, the American colonists who come to this country, or the indigenous stories of that are, are playing a large role right now in the conflicts of around Israel and Palestine. So these are powerful things. And what they're trying to do is actually connect them. So that the Genesis story doesn't compete with the Exodus story, 
but that somehow they can be synthesized at some basic level. And together they form this thing, what I call the people's history. It's the people's history because it talks about being a people without a palace. Because, and it's demarcated, in my understanding, from a palace history, a palace history that is found in the book of Samuel and Kings. Now, of course, a lot of stuff in Samuel Kings is very late, but it could go back to the story, I think, very plausibly, of a story of King David and how King David brought together all Israel. And it wasn't that he was just the king of Judah, but he was the king that also of the north and that he united in himself two kingdoms. And it, and it persisted in the, the time of his son Solomon. And that's when our history begins. We go back to a common kingdom. Are we a common people? Does the, does the text say? Perhaps. But it certainly doesn't have the idea that we go back to this people that was formed in the land long ago and that the most important moments in our history were not David or Solomon. They were the Exodus. When our God, without a king, saved us, rescued us, liberated us, so that all of the later kings who say, we liberated you from the Moabites over there or the Philistines over there, yeah, great. That then it was not formative for our history. What the formative moments in our history are found in this people's history, um, from Genesis all the way up to the book, sorry, up to the book of uh, Samuel, but not including it. And it really tries to emphasize we can be a people without a kingdom. And that goes to the heart of my thesis, that they're creating a community in the aftermath of defeat, trying to show we can be a people without having a state or a kingdom. What is peoplehood then? Well, that's where they start unpacking it within the books of Moses and elsewhere. What does it mean to be a people? Well, one way is that we're going to come together with a written constitution, and we're going to appeal to those. That's what makes us a people. And those are the written laws of Moses. And they're exploited in different ways at all levels. What role education plays in everything? How to become a people of the book. They're laying the groundwork for that. And what's, what's really magical, if not miraculous for me, miraculous in the sense of my appreciation for the, the unexpected uh, uh, capacities of the human spirit. And that is, these are scribes who are... Um, not writing on the behalf of kingdoms or being, you know, they don't have patrons at the palace. They're writing something that tells about something beyond the palace, beyond the state. They're writing for themselves, but they're writing like in a time where they didn't have a readership beyond themselves. And But they imagined that their texts could be the basis for a community. And they also imagined a democratization of their skills of reading and of writing. And they want to imagine where everyone kind of knows how to do that. Um, does it ever come to, to no, it, literacy is still a huge problem. Um, but they, they realize that if the kingdom is around a text, not the kingdom, but if our political community is around a text without the kingdom, sorry, then the keys to that kingdom, if you will, now and the more, are is education, the ability to read and access. So it forms this people that is really focused on education. And the what I'm trying to suggest and show across the span of 500 pages is how the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Bible of the early church, is a project of peoplehood, answering the question what it means to be a people. And... Um, the people's history that, that you write, or that this the non-palatial story, uh, it, it cuts against uh, one of the the ideas that you find uh, of the the united monarchy of Israel. That this idea that at one point in time there was this united monarchy that is there was no kingdom of Israel, there was no kingdom of Judah, there was just one uh, one one monarchy. So, uh, what area did this land? encompass and and why did it never actually exist and i'm, I'm interested in, in how we uh how archaeologists and historians kind of came to that conclusion that this this is probably a a, a creation uh of mm -hmm. of scribes yeah so the united monarchy is the concept of uh that the two kingdoms that we know historically existed the southern kingdom called Judah and the northern kingdom called israel proper makes things very difficult because israel then becomes the name for the people but it, the, it, the northern king was also called by different things, the house of 
Omri or the, the Samaria or something like that. And it continues on this division, the Samaritans in the time of uh, Jesus, the Samaritans and the Judeans and the Samaritans and Jews all the way into the present. Um, but in the, in the past, um, in this time, when these, uh, these territorial states that we have, and by the way, territorial states that we have in terms of kingdoms are a new phenomenon at this time because the empires had fallen and they create uh, an opportunity for a lot of different players to emerge. And that's where, where Israel and Judah and all these kingdoms start to emerge. They, they would not have existed without the empires falling. And that repeats itself in the, in the 20th century where the empires fell. And now we have all kinds of territorial states back in the Middle East. And there's conflict around that. But to the biblical, it's what makes the biblical story also so fascinating is that um, the, the northern kingdom that emerges from this is the powerful kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah, uh, where David's uh, dynasty persists as the as the uh, as the kings, it's a smaller kingdom. And so, historically, there, the question was: to what extent is Judah actually trying to, to claim that when Israel falls, it is the new Israel? And scholars had questioned that already before the archaeological rec record was um, investigated with this in mind, um, so that the name Israel Finkelstein, who kind of leads this in um, in Israel in terms of the the impossibility of a united monarchy. He does it on terms of dating, different sites, that the pottery don't match, and that they, the, the material culture is very different, with various kinds of arguments in terms of uh, just the periphery uh, and how the you can see where borders are. And, um, and that is, uh, and then the, what I would, He's the archaeologist, right? I'm the biblical scholar. What I would also point out, though, just as a biblical scholar, just from political theoretical uh, things, there must have been a polity of all kinds of different things, little kinglets, the king, and that they start to emerge. Anyways, what emerges in the north is the powerful kingdom. And um, it's after it falls, this Judean kingdom in Jerusalem claims this. All of you all were part of us, our king, its ancestor, David, long ago, is the one who brought us together. You need to come back to the fold, because when you come to our side, you're not doing anything new, you're doing what we had at the beginning. We're returning to this moment of unity, right? We're not creating a new moment of unity. And what's powerful about that is, first of all, it comes from the kings who have this Clear agenda, it's propaganda. It grows out of propaganda. But the, the, the southern kingdom is then destroyed. And what emerges from that originally political propaganda is something powerful, powerfully um, oriented toward peoplehood. Meaning that the north, the inhabitants of the north and south, we go back not just to a united monarchy where David brought us together. We have common, we go back to a common family and that we became a people long before a monarchy ever united us. So what sets it all in motion is an attempt by a propaganda machine after the Northern Kingdom falls that the Southern Kingdom starts to become very powerful and say, you need to come back to us. And it's like, we are the tr true Israelites. It's God, your God, who is our God and who pointed David on the throne in Jerusalem. That's the capital. All of that starts to become the basis for like a new model of after the kingdom falls and there are no kings to be pushing this propaganda. Can we still be a people though? Can we like unite as just free out of voluntary? Can we start to, do we have the will to see ourselves going back to a family? And that happens on the foundation of the Bible that the Bible lays without any kind of central political um, force that conscripts and that uses professional armies and that creates a state. It's done just because the people voluntarily cooperate. It's something I, I found uh, just so fascinating. And I think, you know, in your writing, it really made me think about it more than when I, you know, when I learned all those years back in Hebrew school about these stories um, is, is just the, 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 the absolute pressure from, from the South, from Egypt uh, being exerted on these, on these Levantine states and then, uh, you know, from the north, the Assyrians and the and the the the, the Neo Assyrians, the the Neo Babylonians, uh, and, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about 
what we sort of know about these different kingdoms, not just Israel and Judah, but the different areas and the, just the different kind of political formations that were going on at that time. You have to imagine civilization. I begin with this. I go back all the way to the formation of civilization, but do it briefly. And I, um, I show how it develops around two water sources. One is the Nile powerful water source, and the other, the Tigris and Euphrates, Mesopotamia, between the rivers. And Mesopotamia is where writing develops um, simultaneous with writing developing in Egypt. And they become, writing allows them to become powerful civilizations, organizing armies across distances and so forth, and allows them to conquer. And what, where are they going to conquer? Two different, it's a, it's a bipolar world. On the one hand, Mesopotamia, very powerful. And then there's Egyptian culture with its hieroglyphics that's not cuneiform, and there's a clash of civilizations. And that clash happens on the on what we call the land bridge. So you think of it, Mesopotamia over here, and all the way around Iraq and, and Syria, and then Egypt on the north tip of Africa. And you can't cross the, the Arabian Desert because it's just too long without any water. That's not the way it was done. It was gone. You go up around the north, come down from southern Turkey and down through uh, Lebanon into, um, into Palestine and then towards Egypt along the coast with either boats or just marching along the coast through Gaza. And then you head right into Egypt. Now, Israel and Judah are these kingdoms on this land bridge. There are many other kingdoms. The question is, why do Israel and Judah, these two kingdoms that are caught in the conflict on this land bridge between these two massive civilizations that are going to clash? And they clash so often right on the doorsteps of the, the biblical kingdoms of Israel and Judah. That's why the Bible is, emerges and you have this complicated thought about what is power. We are the underdogs. We can never actually hope to stand in a world in which there are there are civilizational powers that far outdo us. How are we going to rethink power, number one? But also the question for me is, so why did it happen just between Israel and Judah when you have multiple other kingdoms like the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Arameans, all of the coast of Phoenicia and Tyre and all of the, uh, what, the beautiful cities that remain today? All these powerful cities, why didn't they create a Bible? because they were conquered too. And that's what I answer in my book. <laughs> what are some of the, the ideas as to why, uh, you know, because you, you do make this point in it that there's so many conquered civilizations, so many conquered kingdoms yeah. in history, um, yet the Bible has this unbelievable staying power. You know, maybe there's, of course, always these arguments about, oh, it's just historical contingency, that other people had Bibles, other people had gods, but, you know, the... Uh, you could say that the they were lucky in a sense that their stories got picked up, um, but that's not necessarily true. There there are reasons behind it. So so I you know I would love to get into that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, is we'll... it just a little bit of fate? Some people automatically, and then they understand really quickly that can't be true. That the Bible is around because Christianity uh, rose to be the top world religion, the most powerful centers, right? For for many, uh, and then they brought the Bible with them. And they needed Jews around, and they needed the Jewish Bible, which is was by the way the, the the New Testament authors do not consider their writings Bible. They refer to the Bible as the Jewish Bible, and uh, they're writing kind of a commentary on it with their Gospels and so forth. But anyways, so the church understood the the Bible was necessary, but you can't you can't um, just get the cart before the horse in terms of. How does Christianity develop out of, how did, let me back up, how did the Bible give birth to Christianity, right? So um, to say that a people, um, one of the other options, I'll put it this way, moving on, is that, well, all religions need scripture. And um, and we come at it from this kind of Protestant and Muslim-informed understanding and so forth of texts being so central. But that's an invention of these scribes. They didn't actually begin by trying to create scripture. Once the laws of Moses get implanted in this, then it the texts become a receptacle of holy words and then they're holy text. But these texts are emerging out of defeat. That's my first, right? A new att attempt to think beyond the state 
and the growth of peoplehood. But then the other problem is, well, you're asking is like, why didn't that happen among other people, other conquered peoples directly in the vicinity of these kingdoms of the Philistines and, their, and why in Israel and Judah? And that goes to that gets into a tricky area where people say, well, monotheism or there's something, you know, if you ask some kind of, uh, <laughs> um, you know, older guys in the synagogue, let me put it that well, Jewish genius. It's always Jewish. Like, no, there was no Jew at that time. And there's no genius. And this is if you, you can't explain. So what is it? It's a messy area. And scholars don't like to answer the question why. They love to do the who, the where, the when, the what. Why? Ugh, I don't want to like be teleological about this. I also don't want to enter into the tricky area of, well, cultural chauvinism and so forth. I try to show it has nothing to do with cultural kinds of things other than a people who start to think of themselves beyond the state in, in relationship to another thing, not just defeat, but division. We're divided, and but we can be united. Well, what does it mean how we can be united? With one, one kingdom like David and the monarchy? No, that monarchy doesn't exist anymore. We can still be united in spirit. We can be united as a people. We can, across borders, under the uh, hegemony of an empire, we can still be united in the people. And indeed, we can be even a more powerful people, bringing blessing to the whole world, because that will be what sustains us, understanding ourselves as the descendants of a couple, Abraham and Sarah, who were commanded, go be a blessing to all nations. How can we be a blessing? So it gives them this kind of mission, if you will, and the text really starts to take on power. And it's, it's kind of a snowball effect around Rising above division, that, that prompts the question, is it the political kind of thing that's getting nice? No, there's no political. It's going to be us. Well, what's the, what is us? We're a people. Well, what does it mean to be a people? Let's explore that. And that's what happens across this corpus. And I've given away too much of the book uh, because I want people to discover for themselves how that happens. It is um, something that really just put my heart and soul into it and published with Cambridge University Press. It's an academic press. And it just... Uh, has been so wonderful to see how it took off and got uh, lots of uh, good reviews and so forth. And it's been, I have to say, it's really been wonderful. Um, and that's something because I think I, I always emphasize this, so much work of others and what I'm doing is synthesizing it around the question of why and taking on that part. I think that's part of maybe what attracted me so much to the the book and, and what I enjoyed about reading it so much is the way that you bring together so much uh, different research from different scholars, um, yeah. and then you know include in that your own uh, textual readings, uh, but reading reading these texts in a way not just to try and say, okay, well, this didn't actually happen because the archaeological evidence differs, but saying, okay, it differs maybe from the archaeological evidence, but why? What was yeah. the re the political reason why? And I think that those 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 political arguments that you make about here's what they were trying to do. Uh, in order to, for example, the you know the kingdom of Judah making this appeal to the uh, to the Israelites after the fall of the kingdom of Israel, or or yeah. uh, you know making these arguments about why this this occurred, and it's moving beyond that real quickly. It's moving beyond that. Whose interest does it serve in in the sense of a palace or the priest or the temple? Because I have to admit, a lot of my fellow colleagues or my colleagues are um, they only can think of one kind of explanation. It's like the powerful. And what's what that misses how the, the real reason for the Bible. These this is not serving the powerful. It's trying to empower a community with men and women and all who can understand. That's the that's the triad. All men, all women, and all who can understand come and listen to this text. And that's uh, that for me is um, something that cannot be just like fomented by a palace, it doesn't make sense, or even by a temple or what have you. It has to be people with who are artists and visionaries and who work today, you know, as uh, politically to bring together people. So politics is not in the sense of just propaganda from a palace, but also politics, ground roots, movements. 
And this is one of the most interesting and most powerful one for us to study because it's shaped American national identities, European, but also colonized communities who have emerged in response to imperial uh, uh, conquest by looking to the Bible and looking to its model of Israel and imagine themselves as a new Israel, just like Judah did after the conquest of the North. That's a really interesting argument that I feel like you make, you, you also, you know, make the point over and over and over again in the book that, that the prophets, many of the prophets, they, they were not part of the royalty, uh, that, the, that the royal, that, the you know, the, the royal families, the royal kings, like the Omrides, they actually kind of get a, uh, a bad assessment uh, in the Bible. Oh, yeah. um, you know, I was wondering if you talk a little bit about that, about the way in which the, that, you know, the, um, the stories of the Bible uh, attack the quote unquote powerful uh, leaders. To answer your question about why the monarchy is attacked in what I call the palace history, which is includes Samuel Kings, is that Samuel Kings, this older palace history has been radically reshaped in light of the people's history, creating this larger narrative. And the, as these two stories or two histories, the people's history and the palace history brought together to create this larger national narrative. You have to like reconcile them. One is pointing out to the kings, the kings did it all. And the other is like, no, our God did it long before there was ever a king. And when we made, when we chose to, uh, to form a kingship, a kingdom, a monarchy, it was actually in sin against our God's original wish and desire. So this is uh, the king. It, the kingdom serves a role in the final analysis, but it's, it has to be held in check by something above it. And that's the prophet. The prophet marches in, points the finger like in King David in that dramatic scene after the rape of Bathsheba or the affair. Or the, it's, it's an awful kind of forced moment of, of aggression on David's part where he is depicted in a, in a way that is, this is the lowest part. And then the prophet Mark walks in and points the finger at him and says, you're the one. And that continues on with other kinds, like you were talking about the Omrides and Ahab and all the prophets are against them and so forth. What they're trying to do is to somehow um, say the kingdom is not ultimate. So when the, if the kingdom is going to serve a role, it has to be subject to a higher authority. What is the authority? It's the prophet. They don't have the understanding that it's like the people can hold the kingdom, even though that happens a lot, though, too. It is more... Uh, that there's a prophet who, who will march in and speak in defense of the covenant. And so there you see how this covenantal-oriented story of the people marching out of Egypt and coming together around Sinai and all the laws, that that has, been, has influenced the way the palace history is transmitted. So that, yes, the final con in the final contours, it would be great if we had security, if we had a state. And everything would be okay if we just kind of kept to ourselves and didn't get in the way of these big empires. But you know what? Our kings are ambitious. They don't listen to the prophets. And they march beyond our borders. We have very small borders. God gave us these borders, and we're not to go beyond them. And sometimes our kings do that, and they get us into trouble. So that what happens is the prophets march in and proclaim the end. And that then sets up that larger hope that there is through the office of the prophet or the text which the prophet represents that's the point of continuity in history not the kingdom and thus the kings have to be really excoriated we do not have any kinds of texts like that in the ancient near east the prophets and the diviners serve very much in the court uh, there are prophets who may speak kind of on the outskirts of a city um, and they're watched but you don't have um, a reverence for this prophet kind of thing. It is kind of, how can we shut her up? And that's what also the kings of Israel and Judah try to do, but the idea is in the text, that's not the way to do things. And um, there is a body of texts that talk about the kingdom that we don't have from Ashurbanipal's uh, um, library, where all the texts are coming from the kingdom in a certain sense. That they, um, the Gilgamesh epic and the flood stories and all of that are things that the palace would have wanted to, to, ha to have around. They don't really undermine it. The book of Samuel and Kings, the palace history, if you will, that is something that no kingdom would want in their library. Just constantly be told how kings 
screw up. And that makes this this text really powerful because it has this duality in it. That is, a state is not inherently evil, but it, it brings with it new dangers for the people. And what we would love to have is that kingdom that it would be reestablished sometime. When will it be reestablished? That's where the prophets come in. And they say somewhere over the rainbow, it's going to be reestablished. But in the meantime, in that messianic age, before that messianic age ever comes through, where the Messiah returns, and what, and that's where Christianity is going to pick up directly on that kind of kingdom of God, and and Jesus establishing that kingdom in a new spiritual way. What the Hebrew Bible does says there'll be a kingdom, it will come, but not in our time, not in our time, and that's all that matters. You know what matters is that we try to find a way forward when we don't have the kingdom. So the kingdom is a hope and aspiration. Why? Because we want to live in, we don't want to live at the mercy of others. We want to have peace and security and to have a David who might be able to protect us. But if we do that, we have to always recognize that states bring problems with them. And what we have to also prepare is that there's not any going to be any state for eternity and we have to have a plan B. And this plan B, that's what we're working on here in this, what I call the biblical project. Point that, that you make in the book is about this idea of, of it really uh, being, the, the Bible really being this book about, uh, you know, the construction of a people, the construction of a nation, but a nation without a state anymore. And I was wondering if you could talk about, uh, you know, how your study of the Bible has made you think about what the meaning of a na of of nations are, the meaning of a nation is, what the meaning of a people are, and and, and one one necessarily without a state. Uh, yeah. So what? That's a very good question. Thank you for posing it for me. And it's um, so nation is different from state, meaning that nation is the people, and um, we have the thing called nation state. The U.S. is a nation state. India is a nation state. What have you? Um, and what that means is there's an a people, the American people, and they inhabit a country, the state. Now, what the Bible does is introduce, without that those terms, but it, the, their terminology comes very close, and they say, there's a people, it's Am, Am Israel, the people of Israel. That's the what we call the nation, and then there's the state, and it's called the kingdom. The kingdom, the king, the palace, and so forth. Those That's the terminology, but basically just the kingdom, Mamlacha that then is the state. But what happens is there's a division between nation and state, and that had never existed. That's what we take for granted in our modern times. And it goes directly back to the biblical um, understanding because the people who come up with the idea of nation and nationalism and so forth, like Herder um, in, in Germany in the 19th century, 18th century, um, He's drawing directly on the Bible to imagine a German people who are not confined to any one of the competing states that have long defined it, the, the landscape of the German-speaking peoples. So he's trying to say we're a German-speaking, we are a German people, and we don't have to have these, uh, we can transcend the states, and he's drawing directly on the Bible to show that. Because the Bible says there were people of Israel before there was a state. So that has this biblical division of people and state, which is foundational for us. And it's hard to think beyond uh, the idea that there can be a people and a community because we see so often when states are wiped out, those communities often persist and become even more robust. So there's some real truth to this. It's not some kind of weird category. It's real truth behind that that peoples can survive collapse collectively if they reorient their lives. I draw on the history of the Crow Nation, Jonathan Lear showing how the Crow Nation is conquered and put on to reservations and they have to reinvent themselves. And um, so nation is one kind of model that they gravitate to and rightly so, we are a people. And we don't have to have our territory. We don't have to have our political power to be a people. And that's and it, that's a distinction that the that um, informs both our understandings of nation state, but also to answer your question, nationalism. So 
Herder was a nationalist, if you will, would he have condoned the kinds of things that nationalists over in the course of the 20th century and 21st century are doing? No. Nationalism now has become very much linked to a xenophobic, what Jill Lepore at Harvard, the Harvard historian says, nationalism is different from patriot patriotism and saying that you're not us, we're not you, that's you're not good enough for us. Whereas patriotism says, look what unites us. I love being a part of this country because this is us. This is we, I guess. Um, we are this. And all of us can come together. So that's patriotism. And that's what I call peoplehood in the sense of just a love for the diversity of a political community. And in a real sense, I also want to encourage the reader to think of like how a political community as your nation um, has is required to overcome divisions, to work together, to not to see the other side as evil, but to recognize coming together is going to synergize new things that can be a blessing to the world. And that's the uh, that's the key moment is when Abraham is it starts it all off in Genesis 12. That's when the story gets going. Be a blessing. And that we can come together. I know I'm start, starting to sound like a rabbi. I'm not. But um, to be a blessing in the sense of how can we come together for good? And how instead of, we think, by the way, with nationalism and how it's taking over, um, that we can start to keep on arguing forever. That we can start saying th that the biggest issues right now are things about who we are not when we really need to be asking about who we are right now, how can we get together because we got some huge issues to face. And for and that grows out, I think, in my understanding of a defeated people, Israel and Judah, who are saying, we got to look at what we've got ahead and we can't afford to be fighting with each other right now. We've really barely uh, scratched the surface of what's in this book. Uh, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about, uh, you know, just, just, just a little bit of, uh, of the book, it, it, when you really dig into almost every single part of of the Hebrew Bible, what where these stories came from. So, you know, just in the interest of time, I'm wondering if there's a, a particular story in the Bible that we haven't talked about. Maybe you know, one beyond the the Genesis story or the the uh, the Exodus account, the ones that people are familiar with. But maybe a you know a story or a part. Of, yeah, I want to draw Bible attention to you. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I I would. Some of the most fun stuff or funnest stuff is in the in the final chapters where I deal with the Song of Songs and Job and co the Ecclesiastes and the Book of Esther in which God never appears and how this project of peoplehood actually is imaginable as the Book of Esther, which is one of the most important books in the whole Bible, is imaginable as without God in the picture at all. It's really quite difficult for uh, people who are believing to embrace that, but that's the facts. And um, and and the rabbis, by the way appreciated that. Whoever is a Jew, whoever comes to hear the book of Esther read publicly in the in whatever. The point there is a lot of this stuff is pushes the agenda in different directions. So there is this kind of covenantal thing, but then there are these texts that undermine it. Kohelet in the book of Job uh, or Ecclesiastes really tear apart that covenantal understanding in one way and saying, it doesn't apply for me. I've done good all my life and I've been punished like hell. So how do good thing how do bad things happen to good people? Let's let's go to war here, go to battle, God, and they come back and they really in in with imagery of fighting like champions with each other with their words. They hurl words and they say, gird up your loins and so forth, and they go at it. So the deity um and the and this heroic man of faith says, How can you do this kind of powerful text but you also have this love poetry and the song of songs which barely mentions the god i either doesn't even talk about marriage nor children or anything but just two lovers who talk to each other in the same way who want to see each other want to be heard by each other listen for each other's voice and the most exquisite love poetry that's all it's about and the question is why is that a part of this curriculum and it's the key is like this is the holy of holies if two people can get along with each other, then it's possible that we all can get. But if we can't, if two people can't get along in our midst, there ain't anything going to happen. So we have to really. It can't be about family. It can't about be a marriage. It got to be. It's got to be about just 
total desire and love and interest and curiosity and wanting to be with somebody in particular, because that is going to be essential to becoming the kind of I-thou motivated person to appreciate the other, to have a love and respect that is going to redound, as this poetry shows, to nature and all the communities around them. And um, so a lot of that, that's where I really um, wax eloquent, if you will. I really get into that because that moves me. It's, it's really powerful to see the inclusion of these kinds of texts after a magnificent system is set up that you have the... Um, the minority reports included that really uh, draw big questions and that they have become really some of the most powerful parts of this corpus. There, there's so much really in these texts. And of course, of course there is because they, <laughs> they're written by, by many people over, over yeah. hundreds and hundreds of years. It's really uh, unbelievable. The, the story that collaboration. That. Yeah. And not putting their names into them, right? Not taking credit for it, but just like, I'm going to write this poem. No one will know that I wrote it. No one. And it's going to be, I'm going to insert it in the book of song songs. This needs to be included in the best of all um, <laughs> love poetry for us without being ascribed to any particular name. And that is just altruistic work to say, I am giving of my art um, for the benefit of all without any um, expectation of personal honor from it. Yeah, I, well, you know, I, I really uh, in, encourage uh, listeners to to pick up the book and and check out, uh, you know, some of the things that we we haven't discussed, and also to to, to read about uh, what we have, because I think uh, in the book you 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 really do um, also highlight a lot of the archaeological. We haven't talked about some of these things like the Mernepta steel and and other pieces of of evidence that that help paint this uh, this picture or help help us get a better uh, mm -hmm. understanding of of what actually might have occurred of course it's we have one percent of one percent of one percent of yeah. the evidence yeah um, but so there's I, a lot I, of it's a lot of variation between you know interesting caleb some people say um i hated the first part all the archaeology um and um and the other people say well i well i don't say they hated it but it's like after you get past the archaeology it really gets going and then it's like other people man that part of the archaeology is the best, but then it gets so like into gushy stuff around lamentations and stuff. So you really have two different kinds of readers coming at this. And um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm now working on a new book and I'm, I'm taking that kind of consideration to stride that, that a lot of people want to hear about the archaeology, but they're a very different reader than those who want to hear about um, how to reinvent oneself. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there, there's, there's so many approaches that you can, take to this and you really uh you know there's a reason this book is is nearly 500 pages uh well jacob thank you so much for, for i being appreciate on the, the conversation of course yeah the, the book is uh is why the bible began an alternative history of scripture and its origins thanks so much thank you